to the DeMond brothers, just be a Roman Catholic. That's all you gotta be if you're really this dead set on believing Roman Catholic things. Be a normal Roman Catholic, would you? Hello and welcome back to Reading and Evaluating the DeMond Brothers, our set of Acontist friends over in their monastery. Last upload we talked about how they like to sneak in lots of logic and tradition over the course of their book, quote, The Bible Proves the Teachings of the Catholic Church. I brought up how the Catholic Church itself, under the papacy, they don't have this problem because they say, well, capital T tradition is equal to capital S scripture. So if we say something that we can't prove using the Bible, you really should accept it because the church is the pillar and bulwark of the truth or something. The problem with the DeMond brothers is they're trying to assume Protestant sola fide principles and they're claiming that you can just have Roman Catholicism using just the Bible. This isn't true. Not in the slightest. And they know that. So they've been trying to slowly, quietly bring in all sorts of tradition. And sometimes not so quietly as they end up just straight up quoting councils and church fathers to shore up their argument that it's the Bible proving it rather than, you know, the church fathers. Now, being a Lutheran, I'm going to actually pay attention to their exegesis here, as well as the consequences of what they say. You can have your logic. You can have a brilliant mind. And you can say, ah, the Bible says this and this and this, and if we interpret this way and this way, it has this conclusion. But your conclusion must still be in harmony with the rest of Scripture. Here today, we're going to start looking at some problems with that, the big picture thinking that I don't think the DeMond brothers are capable of. At least thus far, they've demonstrated they're really not capable of it. But let me show you. We go into Mary's bodily assumption does not contradict biblical realities. Some people consider it fanciful that Mary could have been miraculously assumed into heaven, body and soul. However, the Bible tells us that Elijah was miraculously carried away to heaven... We also read that Enoch was miraculously carried away to walk with God. It's also clearly taught in the Bible, and is an article of the ancient Christian faith, that all men, whether good or evil, shall be miraculously reunited with their bodies at the final judgment, for the resurrection of the just and the reprobate. Thus, it's not in any way contrary to biblical realities, but rather corresponds precisely to them to believe that Mary was assumed into heaven because she was God's perfect ark and without sin. Problem with that. What does the assumption say? This is one of the two official 
100% confirmed by the Roman Catholic Church, ex cathedra statements from the chair of St. Peter. Vatican I establishes that when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, all of the Roman Catholics in the world have to believe exactly what he says as an infallible statement. One of these is the bodily assumption of Mary into heaven, and it's given with such meager details that it doesn't necessarily mean anything other than, well, Mary's in heaven. It could mean that she died and then her corpse floated on up to the throne room of God. It could mean, as a few radical Catholics have said, that she died and then on the third day rose again from the dead and was brought into heaven. It could also mean, which I believe is the standard understanding, that Mary just didn't die. She was whisked away to heaven uh, the same way as Elijah and Enoch were. It's not a well-defined doctrine, as far as I'm aware, because a lot of Roman Catholics are going to tell you different things about it. Now, is the assumption of Mary necessarily heretical? If you believe that Mary was spared death the same way that Enoch and Elijah were? No. But the Bible doesn't prove it. Now, before we get into their arguments for it, they want us to understand that Mary is the queen mother in the kingdom of Jesus. <laughs> God established a covenant with David in order to establish a kingdom. The Davidic monarchy, the kingdom of God on earth, was meant to be a prototype of the spiritual kingdom of God which Jesus Christ would establish. That's why Jesus is called the son of David in the Gospels. It's why Peter himself says in Acts 2.30 that Jesus sits upon David's throne. And he quotes Luke 1.32, He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of David his father. Okay, no disagreement with there. Jesus Christ has the legitimate claim to the throne of holy Israel according to his descent, uh, patrilineally and matrilineally, uh, stepfather Joseph and his mother Mary, to David. In Hebrew monarchy, the most powerful, honored, and important woman in the kingdom was the mother of the king. She was known as the queen mother. In Hebrew, she was called the Gebira, queen mother of the kingdom, possessed a unique power of influence with the king. Her influence, power, and prestige surpassed that of the king's wife. We clearly see the unique influence and power of the Queen Mother in 1 Kings 1 and 2. And Okay, hear me out here. Jesus doesn't have to run his kingdom the same way David did. And he doesn't have to run his kingdom the same way Solomon did. We'll get to that in a moment. But they cite 1 Kings 1 and 2, or 3 Kings 1 and 2 in the Dewey Rames Catholic Bible, as evidence for the institution of the Queen Mother. Solomon's mother was Bathsheba, and Adonias, or Adonijah, says this to her in 1 Kings 2, 17. I pray thee speak to King Solomon, for he cannot deny thee anything, to give me Abishag the Shunammite to wife. 
even though Adonai's request was unreasonable and would never have been granted by the king, this shows us that it was recognized that the queen mother had a unique and profound power of influence with the king. This influence was so great that Adonai said he cannot deny thee anything. Really? Okay, let's see where they go with this. The next few verses shed even more light on this truth. In 1 Kings 2.19, we read that Bathsheba went in to speak to King Solomon to ask of him the favor. When she entered, the king bowed himself to her and caused a throne to be set up for her next to him. From 1 Kings 2 verses 19 and 20, Then Bathsheba came to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah, and the king arose to meet her, and bowed to her, and sat down upon his throne. And a throne was set for the king's mother, and she sat on his right hand. And she said to him, I desire one small petition of thee, do not put me to confusion. And the king said to her, My mother, ask, for I must not turn away thy face. Okay. Remember what we said last week. There is a difference between description and prescription. The Bible here is telling us that Solomon honored his mother quite greatly. The Bible is not telling us that this establishes the office of the queen mother, by which we understand typologically Mary is the queen of heaven and Jesus does what she asks. This is a descriptive passage about an event in history. It is not typological. There is nothing in scripture that tells us it is typological. Yes, Christ descends from David according to his human nature. Nowhere in scripture are we told that his kingdom works exactly the same. But I digress. Let's see what they say. The Bible teaches that the queen mother is honored on a throne with the king. She is not equal to the king, of course, but she is honored along with him as the queen of the kingdom. Here we see a perfect description of the queenship of the Blessed Virgin Mary and her influence with the king. She is the queen mother in the kingdom of Jesus. Mary is infinitely inferior to her divine son. However, she is the perfect ark, the queen of heaven. This is why Mary has such a power in heaven under her divine son, a power and influence that is greater than what the queen mother of the Old Testament had over the king. It's why it's so effective to ask favors of her so that she can ask them of Jesus. She is placed in the kingdom of Jesus beside him as the queen of heaven and earth. And that's where it breaks down, Mr. Demond. He tries to give you this like in before. In before you claim this is putting Mary above Jesus. Uh, no, we're going to go ahead and say that her position is inferior to that of Christ. But then he says that Jesus fulfills her requests. That you can go to Mary with your request and then she turns around and goes to Jesus and passes them along to Jesus. Now, if we're thinking typologically, 
with the one-for-one one to the institution of Queen Mother, if it existed in the way the Demond brothers are saying, what does Solomon say? I must not turn away thy face. I'm going to do what you say, Mom. In the ESV, it is, make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. So, question. If Mary was assumed bodily into heaven, without having died for the sins of mankind, and if, according to typology, Jesus responds to his mother the same way Solomon responds to his mother, meaning an honor greater than himself, to the point where it seems that maybe Mary has authority over Jesus with the ability to make requests and demands, how is this not elevating Mary to a status that is either equal to or greater than God? If God himself says to Mary, I will grant you anything you request, my beloved mother, using all of my divine omnipotence for your requests, how is that not elevating Mary to where Mary does not belong? Now, if you go to 1 Kings chapter 2 and you read that King Solomon refuses the request to uh, allow Adonijah to have Abishag the Shunammite as wife, this is absolutely something Solomon does. But he only refuses the request of Adonijah, not the request of Bathsheba. He is saying, oh, this bastard went to you to make a request of me. I punish him, not you, for passing it along. So are we also saying that the only people who go to the Queen Mother, marry with their requests, are bastard usurpers like Adonijah? And the only reason we get a refusal is because we're about to get executed by the king? Is that what the Demond brothers are saying? See, they are so interested in saying, uh, the Bible says what my church says, that they miss the forest for the trees. They're not looking big picture. They're just in beforeing it in the hopes that you don't make the conclusions that may be on the down low they're making. And this goes into the assumption of Mary as well. Is it morally permissible and scripturally permissible to claim that maybe Mary was bodily assumed into heaven in a similar fashion as Elijah and Enoch? Sure, anything can happen. Exceptions to the rule of mankind dying on account of our sins is something that happens, yes. But then, do we have to turn around and say she was assumed body and soul into heaven on account of her perfect sinless nature as the Ark of the New Covenant? Well, if you say that, don't miss the forest for the trees, now you're also saying that Enoch and Elijah were sinless. Or you have to come up with some other reason that they were bodily assumed into heaven. Because the Bible isn't saying that Mary was sinless. It's not saying that she was assumed body and soul into heaven on account of being sinless, is it? 
But it's not saying that about Elijah and Enoch either, so are we supposed to just assume that the same explanation is there? Oh no, Mary is super special. Why can't I say Enoch and Elijah are super special, huh? Why not? You've just given everybody permission on account of your explanation to say this about Enoch and Elijah. Why not? They're missing the forest for the trees. They are not constructing a dogmatic theology. They're not doing systematic theology. They're trying to insert their theology into the text. Especially when they say, well, the bodily assumption of Mary is something that is possible given scriptural priors. Okay, but this book is called The Bible Proves the Teachings of the Catholic Church, and you're not proving that this is the case from scripture, are you? No joke. Their supposed evidence for the assumption is Revelation 12. There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. Okay, that's a defensible position. Yes, Mary is the woman in Revelation chapter 12. But they say, Revelation chapter 12 provides us with a clear picture of Mary assumed into heaven and placed as queen of heaven. Really? Is that the case? Let's read from Revelation 12 and see if you get that idea. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon, under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. Alright, picture of Mary, already crowned, far before any sort of coronation, right? This is a reference to Genesis with the dreams of Joseph. All of Israel was led up to the point of the birth of Christ. And Mary, being the mother of our Lord, is right there to give birth. But another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars in heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Of course, the devil attempted to destroy our Lord even from the womb. Herod was persecuting. He was doing his persecutory thing. Verse 5, She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's Christ. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, and then he rose again, and then he ascended into heaven to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Verse 6, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Not heaven, not being bodily assumed into heaven, into the wilderness, for 1260 days. The next time we hear about the woman in chapter 12, it says, When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. 
Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. The wilderness is not heaven. The wilderness is a place of temptation and endurance. Nowhere in this chapter does it say the woman was taken up to heaven. Now, I am inclined to see Revelation as speaking about the church. The woman, while connected to Mary, really does talk more about being the church, God's Israel, the church of our Lord Christ, everybody who has believing, trusting, loyalty, and faith in Christ. That's probably a better explainer of who this woman is. But you could say it's Mary if you're willing to get a little creative with the details and admit that Mary is not assumed into heaven by this passage. It says she goes to the wilderness. If the woman of Revelation 12 is Mary, this indicates to us that at some point she fled persecution going into dry and arid places and probably ended up dying there. Again, I think it's more likely that the woman is the church, and the church enters their period of wilderness, endurance, since the time of the ascension. Even since Pentecost, we've had to deal with persecutions. That is most certainly true. But my big point here is, the Bible says one thing, the Demond brothers say another. They want you to think that it is the same picture, but they are different pictures. Because you can crack open your Bible, read it, and see that it's not saying what the DeMond brothers are saying. Including silly moments like this where they say, The Bible also gives us a glimpse of the assumption of Mary in Psalm 132 verse 8. Arise, O Lord, into thy resting place, thou and the ark which thou hast sanctified. Okay, Psalm 132 is a psalm of ascents, meaning we are going to the temple. We are going to the holiest of holies. Let's sing this song. Okay, this is why in verse 13, the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Yes, this is a psalm of ascents. They're going in a procession to worship, and it is telling us the Messiah is going to come. This is what it all points to, our ultimate Savior. But what do the DeMond brothers in their weird, turgid exegesis say about this verse? This interesting psalm speaks of the Lord and the ark arising or being carried to a permanent resting place. This is an image of the assumption, for Jesus is the Lord and Mary is the new ark as we have shown. Both of them are taken to heaven, body and soul. Jesus ascends on his own, Mary is assumed by Jesus. Except that the text isn't saying that. 
Just because something is typological does not mean that it is a one-for-one -one comparison. Besides, Mary being brought to heaven happens whether or not she lives or dies. Okay? Everybody who dies in a state of grace, meaning they have saving faith in our Lord Christ, they go to heaven. You will be assumed into heaven, maybe not with your body, but that's okay. Believers go to heaven when they die. So did Mary, in all likelihood, go to heaven when she died. But they don't care about what the Bible says because these guys trying to tell you the Bible proves the teachings of the Catholic Church punt to logic. The assumption of Mary into heaven flows logically from her preservation from sin. The bodily assumption of Mary flows logically from her preservation from all original and actual sin. The corruption of the flesh in the grave is a consequence of original sin. Most Protestants would agree on this point. As the Ark of the New Covenant, Mary did not have original sin. As a result, she was free from its consequences. It follows from this that God did not let her body see corruption. <laughs> <laughs> Look, guys, there was a box. Hear me out. There was a box. It was a really important box. And it was made of incorruptible wood, you know, stuff that wouldn't rot. But that means that Mary is sinless because of the box. She's a picture of the box. The box is a picture of her. And therefore, because it doesn't rot, and because Jesus wasn't allowed to see corruption, the box can't see corruption either. So therefore, Mary had to have been brought to heaven exactly as Elijah and Enoch were. Because I'm thinking. <laughs> you can almost see them with like string on a wall, point by point. And they're like, listen, the Bible doesn't say Mary was sinless. But it has to mean that she's sinless. Because even though it doesn't say that, it has to mean that because Mary is pictured by the box. And the box was absolutely perfect. The Bible doesn't say that the box was absolutely perfect, but it was the ark for a perfect covenant, which means it had to have been perfect. It has to be the case, because if the box isn't perfect, the woman isn't perfect. And we know that the woman is perfect, and that's why she was bodily assumed into heaven, just like Enoch and Elijah, which it doesn't say that, but it has to be that case, because otherwise we couldn't say that she was perfect, like the box. See, I thought these things through, so you have to believe it. The Bible isn't saying it, but the Bible is proving it because I'm smart. And that's why Jesus has to listen to Mary and pay honor to her and do what she asks, even though she's inferior to him. You know, he literally bows to her just like Solomon did, and he sets up thrones for her. She's clearly in higher authority than him, except that she's not because then you'll get mad at me and not believe what I'm telling you to believe. We're the Demond brothers. Believe us. <laughs> That about does it for their Mariology. They get into some stuff talking about how Mary is the mother of God. It, well, okay, Protestants will agree with you if they understand what the term Theotokos means and why the hypostatic union is what the church was really going for. Okay, like they talk about that where nobody's really disagreeing with them, but they think everybody is. Next week, we're going to get into detail about why 
the Bible, according to the DeMond brothers, advocates for the papacy that they hate and don't believe in. Can't wait for it. This is your brain on being an isolated extremist with no checks and balances on your worldview, guys. We'll get into that next week, but until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen. Thank you.